When the Titanic was found by Dr. Robert Ballard in 1985, it shook the world, and it captured the world's collective imagination. The oceanographic technology originally envisioned by Ballard had caught up to his ambition to find the famed shipwreck. The system was called Argo Jason, and it allowed what Ballard termed a telepresence on the seafloor. The system consisted of a deep ocean towed camera and light sled called Argo, with a tethered, remotely operated vehicle called an ROV, or what I suppose today we might call a drone named Jason, that could get even closer to the wreck and do the detail work. The year after the initial discovery of Titanic in 1985, with the Argo sled, Ballard returned to the site in 1986 with Jason Jr., or JJ, which was a smaller prototype of the Jason system. Smaller, you say? A junior version. Whatever would you need that for? Oh, and did I mention that JJ was financed by the United States Navy? I promise you, it wasn't to fulfill Robert Ballard's ambition to find and photograph the wreck of RMS Titanic. Under the waves and into the deep, this time on the Cold War Vault. Part 1. January in the Mediterranean. 1968 was a terrible year for submarines. It started out badly in January for the Israeli sub Dachar. Dachar was a World War II-era British submarine that had been christened HMS Totem and was sold to Israel in a three-submarine deal in 1965. But it was on its way back to Israel for the first time in January 1968 when it vanished on the 25th with 69 crew and without a trace. Well, there was one trace. An emergency buoy was found a year later on a beach south of Gaza. The ship had been conducting dive trials around Scotland for several weeks without any trouble. Its intended plan was to reach Gibraltar and then sail on snorkel across the Mediterranean. Dakar's last known position was 100 miles west of Cyprus. Soon after the presumed loss of the submarine, the Israeli Navy released a statement that Dakar went down due to a mechanical failure and not some kind of enemy action or foul play. This was a useful clarification, even if it might not have been true, seeing as the sinking took place just seven months after the Six-Day War and during the ongoing War of Attrition, with Israel's enemies all around them. So, tensions were high. The wreck of Dakar was finally found in May 1999 using a search team from American Nauticos Corporation, and advanced sonar and imaging robotics. It rests at approximately 10,000 feet on the bottom of the Mediterranean, between Crete and Cyprus, 
on the track of its last known course. What happened to Dakar remains a mystery, at least the cause of the disaster. The Israeli Navy was on site immediately after the discovery to identify the wreckage, and though the periscope was up and they were meant to be on snorkel, it doesn't seem that they had a collision. What does seem clear is that rapid flooding somewhere in the forward compartments sent the ship into an uncontrolled dive. Its rated maximum depth was 300 feet. According to American Nauticos and the experts who analyzed the wreck, the whole event took less than two minutes. Oh, and not to veer too far from our main characters in this story, in 1992, Robert Ballard, yes, that Robert Ballard, published a novel titled Bright Shark with journalist Tony Chu. It postulated that the INS Dakar had been carrying nuclear contraband and the Cold War powers would risk global disaster to keep the secret. Just a note, when the ship was found seven years later, no evidence of a global conspiracy was found along with it. But then, how would we know? Somewhat unbelievably, as the search for Dakar was going on, 48 hours or less after its sinking, another submarine went down in the Mediterranean. The French submarine Minerve disappeared with all hands, a total of 52 on January 27th. It had been traveling just below the surface of the Gulf of Lyon on its way to its base in Toulon. The ship was traveling just below the surface on snorkel, engaged in an exercise with an aircraft tracking overhead. The captain radioed that Minerve would be at the berth in an hour. It was the last communication. The search began immediately after it was clear that the ship was overdue. The aircraft carrier Clemenceau joined the search along with the famed Jacques Cousteau himself in charge of his SP-350 submarine. The search failed to turn up any evidence of the Minerve. The search continued into 1969 with the help of the U.S. Navy, but with no results. The ship was never found. Addendum. It was never found until I decided to write this episode. I switched over to some tabs for a fact check, and a reference to what I was doing appeared in my newsfeed. A smallish headline from the BBC mentioning that the Minerve, after 50 years, had been found. To be honest, I didn't even know they were looking. Literally, hours before I wrote this segment. Well, to some extent at least, the mystery has been solved. The ship had been on course and had gone down about 28 miles, or 45 kilometers south of Toulon, in 7,710 feet, and on its implosion had broken into three parts. The discovery was made by the company Ocean Infinity, by its ship's seabed constructor, and a fleet of advanced submersible ROVs. According to the French government, after 50 years of searching, it took Ocean Infinity 60 hours to locate the wreck. 
A representative of the French Navy stated that the remains of the wreck would be untouched and become a marine sanctuary. An unexpected update to a long-running mystery from the submarine disasters of 1968. Part 2. The Mystery of K-129 The bad luck continued on the 8th of March with the sinking of the Soviet strategic ballistic missile submarine K-129. This would begin a CIA operation that is likely the most expensive ever undertaken, with a price tag of roughly $4 billion 2019 dollars, and is certainly among the most complex and secretive. But more on that in a moment. K-129, not to be confused with K-19 or K-219, all three famous for tragic accidents, was a diesel-electric submarine that had been built to carry strategic ballistic missiles. K-129 had been on combat patrols in the Pacific through 1967 and into 1968. The last radio communication with the ship was after a routine test dive on its way to the assigned patrol area. And then, nothing. Even though some regular radio check-ins had been expected, there was silence. The strategic missile fleet ran silent for extended periods of time, and so it was more than a week before concerns started to be raised in the naval command that K-129 might be in trouble. Another week went by before Soviet naval headquarters launched a search for the missing submarine. The massive search effort couldn't be hidden from the Americans, and it didn't take long for naval intelligence to realize that the Soviet search was likely for a missing submarine. The question for both the Soviets and the U.S. quickly became, where is it? The U.S. had a tool that the Soviet Union did not. It was an array of underwater listening posts called the Sound Surveillance System, or SOSIS. It was designed to listen for the passing of Soviet submarines. A sound would be picked up on multiple hydrophones at different locations and then because the sound takes different lengths of time to go longer or shorter distances, a location could be triangulated, usually very accurately. U.S. intelligence analyzed the data and found the signature sound of a submarine imploding on the 8th of March. The SOSA system was able to successfully locate it to within just five miles. The Soviet search was hundreds of miles off the mark. Of course, it didn't matter. The entire crew had died almost instantly in the implosion. Two questions remain for us. The first is, what happened to K-129? And the second, what was the CIA going to do about it? No one, at least in the public sphere, knows what really happened to K-129, except that it went down with all hands. Theories include the usual suspects, like an explosion from hydrogen outgassing in the battery compartment, mechanical failure, or a procedural failure that allowed uncontrolled flooding. The Soviets 
and subsequently the Russian government, have preferred the theory that the sinking was the result of a collision with a U.S. sub, namely the USS Swordfish. The Swordfish put into port in Japan at the same time with a damaged periscope, which seems to be the motivation for the theory, but the U.S. government has strenuously denied it. The Russians have asked for the log of the Swordfish, but the request has been denied for the stated reason that Swordfish was off the coast of North Korea in secret operations. A very plausible theory, and one that has the air of just feeling right, which is always a useful scholarly tool when facts are scarce, is that one of the missile hatches leaked and caused an explosion. K-129 carried three liquid-fueled nuclear missiles in the aft part of the sail. If salt water made its way into one of the tubes, it would have reacted with the propellant, which would have caused a fire and then an explosion. What's worse, that would have detonated the high explosive in the warhead itself. Unlike the nuclear missile subdesigns that most are familiar with today, with the tubes in the main body of the submarine, an explosion in the relatively thinner sail would have been catastrophic and terminal. Something else that supports that theory is that there was abundant radiation. I'll mention more about that in a bit, but where did the radiation come from? Remember, K-129 was a diesel-electric submarine, not a nuclear submarine. It could only have happened if a plutonium core of one of the weapons aboard had been exposed in an explosion. The leaking hatch hypothesis is given even more credence because the explosion on K-219 in 1986 was caused by exactly that, leaking seawater reacting with missile fuel. That explosion didn't result in a radiological accident, but it did send K-219 to the bottom with all of its 16 nuclear missiles. The constant companion of any military mystery is the conspiracy theory. The sinking of K-129 is no exception. This situation is not at all helped by a few points of interest that happened in the days and years that followed. First, it's claimed that the K-129 wasn't where it was meant to be, evidenced by the fact that the Soviet Navy was searching hundreds of miles from its actual location. Then, there's the strange anecdotes of secrecy, like the University of Hawaii researchers who found an oil slick off the Leeward Islands of Hawaii that happened to be highly radioactive. Evidence, as I mentioned, for a ruptured missile tube. Allegedly, after their return to port, they were met by federal agents, the ship's log was confiscated, and they were sworn to secrecy. Whether this exists in objective reality or in someone's flawed memory, it seems to only be retold in one conspiratorial account, called Red Star Rogue. I'll put the link to all of the books, real history or fantasy, in the show notes. All of this adds up to the conspiracy theory that K-129 had gone rogue and was on its way to launch a nuclear strike on Pearl Harbor when the ship was scuttled. 
I'll let you read the book and report back. But it seems fairly fanciful to me. Then there were the extra crew. In or around 1994, Boris Yeltsin gave a posthumous medal for courage to the 98 sailors who died on K-129. But the normal complement on that class of submarine was 83, thereby acknowledging 15 extra people. So what does that mean? I have no idea. Engineers, experts, defectors, deadheaders, surplus commissars. I have no idea. And then, Howard Hughes. Anytime Howard Hughes gets involved in anything, you know it's going to get weird. Because it's Howard Hughes. That brings me to the answer to my second question, and very probably the biggest fuel for conspiracies. What was the CIA going to do about it? The answer is, spend more money than they'd ever spent before to raise K-129. Almost immediately after it became clear that something strange was happening with the Soviet Navy in the Pacific, efforts were underway to find the missing submarine. As I mentioned, the Sosis hydrophones had estimated the position of K-129, and so the USS Halibut was sent to find the wreck and photograph it with its special set of deep submergence search tools. It took three weeks of scouring the ocean floor to come across the debris field. An estimated 20,000 photos of K-129 were taken and returned to naval intelligence. And then came a bright idea. The National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger and Secretary of Defense Melvin Laird suggested in 1970 that raising K-129 could prove to be a major intelligence coup. And so the CIA began work on a truly incredible engineering feat. Project Azorian would see the construction of an entirely new kind of ship, outfitted with a derrick and a giant claw and a hull that could open in two sections to bring the submarine up into the vessel out of the view of the Soviets. The whole project would be financed by Howard Hughes, who was really just a front for the CIA's very deep pockets. The stated mission of the ship, named the Hughes Glomar Explorer, was to harvest manganese nodules from the deep ocean, apparently successfully fooling just about everyone. The Glomar Explorer arrived on station on the 4th of July, 1974, the grapple was lowered the 16,000 feet to the wreck on a string of pipes, like what you might see on an oil drilling rig. During the lifting operation, a failure in the claw, described most often as a series of fractures, allowed two-thirds of the submarine to fall back to the bottom. I should clarify that this is the commonly stated official story, though there are some questions about that, mostly in the realm of conspiracy theories that claim that much more of the submarine was raised than the CIA could or would admit. It's hard to know, because official documents are still classified. One thing that is known 
is that the loss of K-129 was a maritime tragedy on a human level as well. A piece of that tragedy is in the public domain, in the form of an excerpt of a CIA documentary of the project. It is the film of the burial at sea of six Soviet sailors found in the wreckage that did make it to the surface and into the Glomar Explorer. After the state anthem of the Soviet Union is played, the remains of the sailors are lowered overboard in a sealed metal container. This was due to the remains being radioactive. Part 3. The Loss of the USS Scorpion The United States Navy was not going to be spared the troubles of 1968. The U.S. had already experienced the loss of a nuclear submarine, the USS Thresher, on April 10, 1963. That remains the greatest loss of life in a submarine accident. 129. Even though the Thresher sinking took place in 1963, it's still important to tie our story together. The Bathyscaphe Trieste, famous for descending for the first time to the Challenger Deep, the deepest part of the world's oceans, was essential for surveying and photographing the wreck of the Thresher for the investigation that was to come. The successor to Trieste, the Trieste II, also played a major role in the investigation of the wreck. Thresher went down in 8,200 feet of water, putting it out of the range of all but the deep-diving bathyscaphs. The sinking of the Thresher gave new motivation to the Office of Naval Research to fund and build deep-diving submarines. It was from this new effort that the lovable Alvin DSV-2 was born. You probably know Alvin from the 1986 missions to photograph the Titanic and operate the little ROV named Jason Jr. But Alvin is absolutely a creature of the Cold War. Alvin is operated by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts. But it's always been on loan. It's a Navy vessel. In 1966, Alvin was used to find a hydrogen bomb lost in a collision over Palomares, Spain. It was found and raised from 3,000 feet down. Well, more on Alvin's Cold War legacy later. In 1968, tragedy struck the U.S. Navy's nuclear submarine fleet again. On the night of the 20th of May, the USS Scorpion was making its way from the Mediterranean back to Naval Station Norfolk. Scorpion was tasked with making observations of a group of Soviet vessels near the Azores. The last message from Scorpion was that they were closing on the Soviets at 15 knots. The search for Scorpion took five months. The wreck was finally found near the end of October in 9,800 feet by a towed camera sled. The extreme depth meant that the Navy's capabilities were stretched to the limit again. The still-secret Trieste II was brought in to photograph the site. The cause of the sinking of the USS Scorpion was never determined. 
beyond what the Board of Inquiry termed a catastrophic failure. Theories have been circulated that the ship was sunk by a torpedo, either her own or by the Soviets that they were trailing. But an authoritative answer has been consistently snagged by warring expert analysis on sound data. What we do know, and what's important for our story, is that Scorpion went down with 99 crew and two nuclear weapons. Part 4. Return to the Titanic. After a week of passing back and forth over the presumed location of the wreck of the Titanic in the research vessel Nor, the search team under Dr. Robert Ballard of the U.S. Navy Reserve began to notice visual anomalies in the video being returned from the Argo camera sled. Then, at 12.48 a.m., on Sunday, the 1st of September, 1985, pieces of debris began to appear. An upright boiler clinched it. The Titanic had been found, and the world was fascinated. Ballard returned to shore, a famed explorer. In the story that ties the discovery of the Titanic to a Cold War legacy, some contradictory information exists. If you were an expert before 2012, and especially before the large declassification of 2010, then I'll try to bring you up to speed. Even though Robert Ballard himself knew and knows the whole story, his 2008 book, Archaeological Oceanography, omits pieces of that story that he was free or more free to tell in 2012. And in 2012, Ballard gave a lecture and said, quote, The Navy had an interest not only in exploration and discovery, but in other kinds of programs. I'll lift the blanket a little on that one, but I can't lift it fully. End quote. So we can all look forward to more in the years to come. Ballard had developed the Argo-Jason system, as I mentioned before, in conjunction with the Navy, their major interest being investigating the wreckage of the Thresher and the Scorpion and determining whether the nuclear reactors were intact, and more importantly, determining the state of the actual nuclear weapons aboard the Scorpion, two nuclear torpedoes, and ascertaining whether the Soviets had been poking around down there. Robert Ballard was put in charge of the undersea survey and thought it might be the right time to push for his longtime dream of finding the Titanic. He used his position in the planning of the mission to suggest that a good cover story for all of this deep sea survey might be a search for the Titanic. And so he traded his expertise for a little time for his pet project. After the mapping of the Thresher and the Scorpion was finished, then, and only then, if there was a little time left, he could use the Nor and the Argo system to search for Titanic. It was a deal. When the primary missions were finished, Ballard only had 12 days left to search. 
but he'd learned some valuable, very useful things on his survey of the lost nuclear submarines. They didn't just sink. They imploded with extreme violence, and it sent a field of debris to the bottom, with the heaviest pieces falling straight down and the currents carrying the lighter pieces. This created a debris field that was many times bigger than the ship he was searching for. Ballard used that new understanding to model the currents on the night of the Titanic's sinking, and it allowed him to eventually find it. Ballard returned the next year with the submarine Alvin, that piece of Cold War technology prompted by the sinking of the Thresher. And one other toy, the first ROV for the Argo-Jason system, Jason Jr., It was a robot that could squeeze into tight spaces for the survey of wrecks. Ballard says he got the Navy to pay for Jason Jr., but it wasn't to go down the grand staircase of the Titanic and look at the chandeliers. Instead, he said, it was to squeeze through the wreck of the Scorpion into the torpedo room to get a good look at those nuclear weapons. So... Next time you see some of those early iconic images of the Titanic taken in 1986 by Jason Jr. and Alvin, just remember that it was all brought to you by the Cold War. Oh, and one more thing. There was one more submarine that sank in 1968. It was Alvin. While it was being lowered into the water, the cables broke. The three occupants managed to escape, but they had to watch the little sub slip under the waves in 5,000 feet. But all ended well in that story. Ten months later, Alvin was raised and dried out. It was discovered that the lunches left on board were soggy, but still edible, thanks to the cold and the lack of oxygen. Alvin was overhauled and continues to do science and whatever else the U.S. Navy might ask of it to this day. Thanks for stopping by the vault for this deep sea exploration. This episode was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. You can follow The Vault on Facebook and Twitter at Cold War Vault, where I post interesting links and pictures. You can see the show notes and a lot more at coldwarvault.com. Listen anywhere you get your favorite podcasts, but liking and subscribing on Apple Podcasts means a lot. Music for this episode was by Lee Rosevere. If you like the music, then check out the show notes for details. Stay above your crush depth. Until next time.